I'm Jason Sautel, and welcome to Jesus is All We Need on the Edify Podcast Network, a show that explores selfless and unique stories that remind us why Jesus is truly all we need. On today's show, we have Brendan McDonough. Brendan was a Granite Mountain hotshot. Now, those of you that don't know what the hotshots are, well, you know me, I'm a city firefighter, and I was a city firefighter for many years. And we would go to a house fire, and generally it would be out in three to four hours, and we'd be back in the firehouse. Well, hot shots, they respond to the largest and the biggest fires in the United States. While most people are running away from these large wildland forest fires that are destroying everything in their paths, these guys run to the fire, and they put lines around the fire. They work as part of an overall team to, to knock the fire down. But the difference between the hot shots and most other firefighters is these guys aren't using water. They're using hand tools. And it's an amazing story. Each one of these guys' story is so unique and not one single guy is better than the other. But Brendan's story actually has a lot of depth to it that others don't because he was part of a 20-man crew and he was the lone survivor of a horrible burnover and 19 of his brothers perished on that fire. Brendan, welcome to the podcast, buddy. It's such a blessing to have you here. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Super excited. Yeah, man. So, you know, I kind of hit what you guys did. And again, I'm coming from a city fireman's perspective and what we saw. If you wouldn't mind, just what's the day-to-day life for a hotshot crew? Yeah, day-to-day life for a hotshot crew is just physically always staying engaged, even when you're not on a fire. So if you're not on a fire, you're doing PT training, you're doing fire training, you're doing brush work. You know, so you're staying active and, and really just pushing yourself to, to be the best. And when you're on a fire, you know, you're working 16 hours straight. You're taking lunch on the side of a mountain, eating an MRE or a sack lunch that's been sitting in your pack heating up. And, you know, you're, you're digging line or cutting fuel with chainsaws for hours on end. And the, the beauty of it, though, really is the camaraderie that you have. And so you're digging line or maybe you're setting a fire to combat the fire. And so people are always like, wait, you're putting out a fire with fire. And so we've got backfires that we do. We have, you know, a lot of different tools that we can utilize. But like you said, 90 percent majority of what we're doing, we're not we're not utilizing water, we're utilizing hand tools. You know, these are these are hand tools any common citizen combined, we're, we're digging and cutting for miles on end to try and stop this fire to, you know, protect um, properties, you know, preserve the forest and most importantly, help save lives. Right. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a mentally, physically draining job, but there's so many rewards to it as well. And you're gone for sometimes two, two weeks at a time working those 16 hour shifts and, there's been times when I've worked, you know, 32 hours straight and it's, you know, it's a, it's a daunting job, but it's, it's a highly rewarding job personally. And something that, you know, was one of the biggest accomplishments of my life and my youth. Right. And, and that's, what's so amazing. And, and speaking of your youth, if you wouldn't mind, let's, let's talk about your childhood because you didn't have the, the quote, normal 
life that you would figure a firefighter would have grown up in, a child that grew up to be a firefighter would have lived in or a teenager. And why you and I bond so well is because I kind of come from the same rough background, the same um, feeling hopeless as a child and having a lot of struggles. So with that being said, what was your childhood and like teen years like before you became a hotshot? Yeah, so I grew up in Southern California. Um, my mom was a single mom. My da- my dad was gone by the time I was two and, and was out of my life and in and out of jail and prison, trying to figure out what he was doing. And so I bounced back a lot between my grandparents and my mom. And so we moved, gosh, probably every six months to a year. When the lease was up, we were gone. Mm-hmm. And so just that instability was really difficult for me to to come to understand and to you know, find a way to get through it. And just being in Southern California during that time frame, you know, this is like early 2000s, skating, super popular, weeds everywhere, you know, and so was just exposed to that at a really young age at about 12, 13, I was exposed to alcohol and marijuana and the things I couldn't fill in those voids of not having a dad instability, I found within drugs and alcohol. And so that just continued to perpetuate through high school. But I had this like double standard life. I was a really, I mean, some would say weird kid, you know, but I, right. and it was definitely lost. So I'd be, you know, going to school, um, never ditched, you know, was always trying to be respectful to teachers and always had that kind of common respect. But on the flip end, I'm drinking, smoking pot, you know, partying in the weekends, partying in the evenings, didn't really matter to me, you know, but on come Saturday, I'd be out volunteering, you know, feeding homeless, I'd be out digging holes for a a veteran's home. So you can have trees, a shade tree to sit under. So it was like this really double standard life and just confused of like, do I want to go down this path of drugs, alcohol, or do I want to be you know, this, this person that's a firefighter or work within a church or something or, or give back. And that continued on all through high school and the drugs got worse, you know, um, just one led to another. And, you know, by the time I was out of high school, I had pretty much tried every drug out there, you know, mm-hmm. opiates, meth, speed, molly, um, just a lot of different drugs that, that I, that I used to, you know, fulfill things in life that I thought couldn't be fulfilled other ways. Wow. And, you know, when I say, wow, I'm saying it not from the standpoint of I'm looking at your life like, wow, he had such a struggles. It's wow, because there's so much of a parallel between your life and my life. And Mm -hmm. one thing I kind of see in common is what you're explaining is I'm not saying that your mom wasn't full of love or your dad was full of. I'll never put the judgment there because I'll never say that my dad wasn't full of love. But when you don't get that love in the home that a child is craving and wanting, you're going to go chase it outside the home, right? And Definitely. I kind of did the same thing. I was chasing everything this world said would make me feel better and would would fill the void inside of me that should have been filled with love that I wasn't getting in the house. And so it's the same thing. I was starting to drink right at the age of 12 or 13. I didn't hate my teachers. I didn't hate school. But what Mm -hmm. I hated was the fact I had no support like all the other kids had. And so it's the same thing as you. I knew right from wrong. I always wanted to chase right. 
But unfortunately, when you don't have that mentorship, that help, the the right doesn't just hang on. All of a sudden, you get the negativity back and you start chasing the drugs, the alcohol, the doing all the stuff we shouldn't do, the 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 demonic <laughs> skater lifestyle. And hey, for my skater kids out there and, and guys, no, you're not demons, okay, whatsoever. What I'm going at is we would always go and skateboard, but then maybe, you know, rip off a, a store for some beer or something like that and do the bad stuff. But like you, I always felt bad when I was doing that. I always felt like yeah. there's so much more, but there's a drop. So in your early adulthood, prior to becoming a, a Granite Mountain hotshot, what was those few years like right before you applied for the job? You know, a few years before I applied for the job was pretty, pretty intense. Um, I was in college, so I went off to college and went through the fire academy, passed, uh, you know, not an issue, had an amazing time and really during that academy, I learned two things. I learned that I, in my brain, learned by being hands-on. And right. so that's the career I needed to be in was something where I could learn to be hands-on. Secondly, I learned the very infancy stages of my addiction because when I graduated high school, I said, okay, I'll, I'll give this up. And when I go on to college, you know, I'll get on the straight and narrow because, you know, get my firefighter one and two, get my EMT and I can get hired in a year. Right. So I'm like, exactly. I've got to get it together. And when I went to college, it was a local community college, but I wanted to live that college life that you hear about the world tells you about, right? The parties, the fun, the excitement, all that stuff, you know? And so I didn't stop. And when I enrolled into my second semester of college, I was going into my EMT and there's some hands-on stuff, but I didn't know how to take notes. I, hear I didn't know how to study for a test. What I tested for the things that I remembered um, from reading it the first time. It didn't matter if I read it 10 times, it just wasn't sticking. And so having that ADHD and that, that addict mindset, you know, I really wasn't committed to it. So it wasn't, but two months in, I flunked out, right. you know, for your EMT class, it's like, Hey, if you, if you fail a test, if you get a below a B, you get one chance to retake it. And if you flunk that retake, then you're out. And I did worse on the second test um, <laughs> because I was so nervous. And, you know, when I flunked out of that, I was still applying for um, wildland jobs. And my mom had worked for the Forest Service at the time. And I had a really awesome in with the local crew. It wasn't the Grand Amount Hotshots. It was Crew 2, a Type 2A crew, mm -hmm. IA crew. And... A bunch of my friends applied. My mom put them in touch with them. And it comes time, you know, I fill out my application online and it comes time to get hired. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a shoe in I know everybody, you know, my mom works there. They want to hire me. And so I get a call to come down to the station. And so I, I'm like, okay, this is it. I'm going to, I'm going to get right. the job. And it, previously hired. that morning, I had two buddies who my mom put in touch with them and they're like, dude, we got hired, man. Can't wait to fight fire this year all together. And so I'm stoked. Right. Yeah. I'm like, man, this is it. Like, you know, I flunked out of school. That's unfortunate, but here's an opportunity to get my life together. And so I go in there and they sit me down and they say, Hey, Brennan, we've got an issue. And I said, well, what's the issue? They go, your application. I was like, okay, what, what's wrong with it? He said, instead of clicking one thing, you, you clicked another, you know, instead of semesters in school or years in school, you click semesters. And I'm like, well, let's just fix it. Yeah. And they're like, well, we pulled the list. I'm like, 
of applicants we can hire. And so I'm like, we'll just pull the list again. Right. And they go, you don't understand. Like we, we don't have control over this list. This is, this is done in Albuquerque. And once the list is pulled for the year, we have to hire from that list. Oh. And I'm like, so you're telling me I, I, I can't get on this year. And he goes, you know, we, we want to hire you, Brennan, but we, there's nothing we can do. Oh. Um, and so that, that doubt, right. Right. And that childhood dream just sinks in. Right. And I'm like, you know what? This life ain't for me. This isn't it. Then the, uh, maybe I'm supposed to go down my dad's path. Maybe that's oh. what I'm supposed to do because I can make money selling drugs. Right. I can do that. I've done construction. I can do both. Right. You know? And so I leave there and instead of taking the high road, it was just kind of defeat after defeat, right? Flunking out of that EMT class to my my really good friends who knew nobody on the crew had no connections. Mm-hmm. I got picked up. Right. So I'm watching that happen. And my mom's sitting there going like, she's lost. Right. She put in all this work, was working at the forest service. I'm trying to call Albuquerque and there's just nothing. And so I just took it as a sign like, Hey, that's not the path I'm going to take. And so I'm going to go down this other one. So I started using really heavy, um, selling quite a bit of drugs, started getting mm-hmm. pretty deep into, you know, opiates, pills, heroin. And uh, that was the summer of 2010. And um, that summer, in the middle of it, I find out I'm going to be a dad. Wow. And I'm uh, just turning 19, I think. And, yeah. and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I get yeah. hit with this. Gut check I'm like, right there, huh? Yeah, like, oh, a huge gut check. gut check. And I'm like, well, now I got to get my life together again. But now I'm even deeper into this addiction. Right. And, you know, so fast forward, struggling with addiction. Um, I get arrested 2010, December, spend Christmas in jail for about a week and was given a second chance because of the things that I was progressing with in life. That mm-hmm. double standard, the judge said, hey, you know, I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm going to give you an opportunity to get your life together. And um, for about two weeks after I got out, I was sober, but I got re-enrolled in my EMT class, but fell around the same people, same places, same feelings. Uh, I've got a felony. I can't get hired in seven years, but I'm determined. Right. But I'm still using and I'm, and I'm just lost. And that's, that, that's kind of leading up to getting hired really yeah. what life looks well, like. Let me, let me take it back just for the listeners too, because I know a lot of the folks that listen to this show aren't in the fire service. And I just kind of want to bring a perspective in from me who's hearing the story from a firefighter standpoint was it's not a jealousy that you saw your friends working. It was more like a, why, why not me? Why, why did I not get the job? And when you've put so much time and effort into preparing for a fire service job, regardless whether it's city, county, forest service, state, whatever it is, there's so much that you, you got to put your, your heart and soul into it. Mm-hmm. And then to have a background of my guesses and, you know, let me go this Brent. And just so you guys know, Brendan and I have been friends for quite a while. So here I'm going into psychotherapy mode with him as a, you know, <laughs> always being told you're probably not good enough. And then the yep. confirmation of not being good enough to get to the job. I, I totally understand where, where that backslide happened, man. It, it, it basically sucks on so many levels. And what makes it worse is when you don't have 
anyone in your life guiding you. You don't have Christian mentorship or a fire department mentorship or something like that. So it makes total sense. So here we go. Let's talk about you now, where you're at prior to getting hired with Granite Mountain, because basically put, you're you're pretty much the uh, least eligible guy for the job is where we're at right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Least eligible guy, suspended license, um, mm-hmm. battling addiction, a felony, uh, not in shape physically. And I've got a kid on the way that's due March. And I just got released out of jail and I'm going through my EMT class, just trying to piece something together. And by happen chance, I'm sitting in there one Thursday evening and I hear some guys talking about an opening on a hotshot crew. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, I want that. That's what I need. I need to get hired on a hotshot crew. That's it. And they're not talking to me because it's a small town, right? right. They know Brennan's, Brennan's sitting in the back, sweatpants, hoodie, yeah. you know, passed out in class half the time. And right. somehow he's still here passing. And so they didn't talk to me about it, but I overheard and they said, hey, why don't you show up at 9 a.m.? And I'm like, I'm an addict. We're tricky. We're, we're mischievous, right? And I'm sitting there thinking, I'll be there at 8 a.m., right? right? And so I wake up 7 a.m. the next morning on Friday. And I start driving towards the station and I, and I go to pull in and I don't pull in. So I see some guys out front and I see them, they're all tan, fit, buff, you know, and I'm like, yep. I don't belong here. Right. Yep. That same thing we just mm-hmm. talked about is like, I'm not worthy of this. And so I drive past and I turn back around and I'm like, okay, I got to pull in. I do this three times, three times in my head. I come up with excuses, but then I come up with reasons and the next time I'm like, Brennan, you got a felony, you know, this isn't going to work out. And I'm like, just, just be honest, dude, the worst you can get is a no. And finally the third time when I pull in, you know, um, I'm like, I got a daughter. Yeah. I got, I got a daughter that was just born. I got to get my life together. I don't want to be the dad that I had, which was non-existent. And right. so I pull in and I'm in a beat up 96 hatchback Subaru, you know, we got big, huge curbs pulling in here because of monsoon season. So it like right. makes a loud noise. Everyone looks over and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not what I need right now. And so I walk in to the office and I see some guys from my EMT class. And I'm like, hey, I heard you guys are hiring. You know, I just wanted to drop off my resume and see if I could do an interview. And they just start kind of laughing at me. No I'm way. Like, I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Thanks and, for the encouragement, fellas. We really appreciate that. Yeah. Oh. And they're like, hey, we're, we're full. We're good. You know, uh, better luck next year. Try hiring, getting hired on somewhere else. And so as I'm walking out, there's this tricky door configuration. And the superintendent's door is right next to the exit. And so I open the exit door as he's coming out of his office. And so the two doors collide. Wow. And so he looks at me and he just gives me this. He's the superintendent. He's from South the Carolinas, right? So he's soft spoken, but I could see the frustration of these doors keeping him from what he was doing, getting his morning coffee, whatever it was, right? And he looks at me and he goes, "What are you doing here?" Shut the door. And so I shut the door. I said, "Hey, I just you know wanted to drop off my application and see you know if there's any chance of getting hired. I heard you're all full. Mm-hmm. Um, you know if I could leave this with you, that'd be great." And so he says, "Give me that." So he starts looking at it and. He goes, hey, we got one open slot. Why don't you, why don't you come, come do an interview with us? So in my head, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, I'll go get some dress shoes, you know, 
get a button up, whatever, borrow it, figure out a, a pre-made right. tie, come back for this interview. Mind you, I'm in work boots, jeans, and mm-hmm. a tank top, getting ready to go, go frame, go frame a house. And mm-hmm. uh, he <laughs> says, "All right, come sit down." You know, and so I'm like, "Oh no way!" So I'm wow. doing the interview on the spot. Wow. And. We sit down and we get going through this interview and I, th- I thought it was just going to be me and him. And he invites all the overhead the, to come in. So there's like six, eight other guys that come in. No this pressure little, there, huh? <laughs> yeah, no pressure. 200 square wow. foot, you know, 200 square foot office. And I'm thinking to myself, position yourself to where you're not sitting next to somebody. So I sit in the love seat, right? Mm-hmm. This is something you might. You might sit in with your wife, but you kind of want your space in, right? And so these two big dudes sit right next to me. One's 220-pound Marine, and another one used to play D1 college. And they sit and just squeeze me in this little love seat. And the the grill session begins. And I'm and I'm a good talker and I've always been able to talk my way out of things and talk my way into things. And so we're going through these questions and I'm answering the best I can. But the, the facts are the facts, right? And the facts are that I may not piss clean for a UA for this job. And the fact right. is I got a felony and I've got a suspended license. And, so and you're get, telling them this, right? Or, so we get to those questions okay. and you know, Hey, what's your license look like? And I'm like, Hey, it's, you know, it's suspended, but you know, it's, it's good to go paid the ticket. You know, it's just, but I've got that knock on my license. And then someone chimes in, they're like, yeah, we probably wouldn't let you drive anyways. <laughs> Point well proven, you know? And so we get into the record piece. And so I'm describing this to them and I'm telling them, Hey, you know, once I complete probation, do my community service, no more felony, it's, it's all good to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, the question gets asked about, drugs hey when when's it wasn't do you but it was when's the last time you used mm-hmm. and so i'm sitting there thinking i gotta answer quick and so i tell them hey you know i've struggled and i'm at a point in time in my life where i'm trying to make changes and i want to be a father to my daughter and that's the most important thing to me right now this has been a dream of mine since i was a child and uh, you know i'd really appreciate this opportunity i didn't tell them when the last right. time I used, I didn't right. lie. Yeah, I just told a white lie. <laughs> I just didn't tell them the complete truth. And yeah. uh, they're sitting there. Everyone's kind of shaking their head. I look at the superintendent, and you know, he says, "Hey, here's the deal. If you can keep up, you got a job. I don't even know if HR is going to be able to hire you, but if you quit, you're done. If you do get hired, you quit, you're done." Wow. I'm like, all right, thank you so much. I appreciate it. So he calls up HR and starts going through it. And the lady's mad. She's like, man, we got 50 other applicants, right? Everyone's applying for fire departments, hotshot yeah. crews. Everyone's applying. There's a long laundry list of applications. And so they get off and he tells me, hey, go down to HR, get this paperwork figured out and start Monday. Um, man, that was, that was one of the most amazing feelings right. I had in my life right? That denial that you're not worth it. And here's this opportunity. But within a split second of not even getting in my car, I'm like, I'm 140 pounds. Mm -hmm. I haven't ran, hiked. I'm not in shape. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even know if I'm going to pass a drug screen test. Mm -hmm. And all those things start going through my mind. And I call my mom and I tell her, and at the time I'm living out of my car, living on people's couches, trying to be present, trying to be a father, but not even close to what Mm -hmm. it means today. And she just says, you know, that's, that's great. Well, you know, we'll see how long that works for you. 
Oh. And uh, it's that instant hit, right? And uh, and so I show up Monday for for our first PT, and um, I made it through the pack test. Right. But I'm wrecked. And I'm, you know, I am just completely beaten. And I drank so much water to give a false negative for that UA <laughs> to make sure that nothing came in between. But I, but I showed up. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking and, and praying at that time, like just a foxhole prayer, right? We all got him. Like, God, if you let this happen, like mm-hmm. I'll do this. Like I'll be this person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just kept praying for that day after day. And just kept taking a physical beating um, right. and, and just kept showing up. And there was a moment when I knew I wasn't going to quit and it was on our first run and I'm dead last. And mm-hmm. I'm snot coming out of my nose. I'm, I'm on the verge of tears, right? <laughs> yeah. And the superintendent, he he stayed back, but he caught me on this run and he's running with me. And, you know, I'm thinking, man, it's going to be a powerful moment. Either I'm getting fired or this is going to be the dad I need, the motivation that, that I need within. And he just looks over at me and he just says really quietly, he says, Brennan, you quit today. You're going to quit the rest of your life on your daughter. And um, that hit me. That wow. hit me deep. And that's what I needed. And from that day forward, I said, I'm, I'm not quitting. I'm not quitting. You're going to have to drag me out of here. <laughs> wow. Well, let, let me backtrack this a little. So for those of you listening in, the superintendent is basically the boss. He's the head guy. He's the, the guy that runs the show for the hotshot crew. Now, I'm looking in it, the story right now, and what I see is a man who saw something in you that I believe a lot of people up until this point hadn't seen. Oh. Am I right in that assessment there? wholeheartedly and I felt that initially and I didn't want to let him down you know he had he had said just just trust me to that HR lady I didn't deserve trust wow you know two weeks later if I'd have seen something hanging out of your if you had an ice chest in your jeep and that top was off I was taking that ice chest right yeah yeah um but overnight this transformation happened in my life right so what I want to do now is just kind of transition so you become a hot shot these guys who now treated you like garbage initially become your brothers. Right. And, and, yeah. you know, if you've read, read the book, it's uh, my lost brothers, or you have seen the movie only the brave. I'm telling you, it's one of the most prolific firefighting movies I've ever seen on all levels because it tr- shows the true camaraderie, the true, mm-hmm. you're a nobody looking in and you got to earn your way in because we're going to selflessly respond to help other people. And we're going to lay our life downs for one another if we need to. So breaking that bond and getting into it, it's kind of tough for the obvious reasons. So now you're there, you're fighting fire with the guys. You're just, they're your family, correct? Yeah. Wholeheartedly. I mean, you know, I'm a dad now. I'm present. I'm present for my daughter's life. I'm I'm learning things even outside of the fire community that I didn't know about. Home loans, you know, balancing a checkbook, Mm -hmm. paying bills on time, all those responsible pieces of life, filing taxes. You know, I always used to just drop it off. I didn't know what tax bracket to claim. I didn't know any of that. But I had these men that were not only helping me become a great firefighter, but a great father and a Mm -hmm. great human being in general right so any of them being christian starting to drop those little gems and those little those little beautiful pieces in my life that would lead to something you know truly amazing so amazing and so you know it's that cliche that we hear about of you know 
forged in fire, bonded in fire, but there's just so much that happens that a lot of folks don't get to see from the outside of a firehouse or from the outside of a crew in about being able to the bond that comes from just being on mission together to do the same thing. And, and just how, like I say, they become your family. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the things that we learn from one another, the things that we grow from one another, and like with me and the Oakland fire department, the same thing, the seeds that were planted in me as a young atheist is, as God was, you know, shaping me to become the person he wanted me to be. Well, it's amazing how he did that with you and in the fire service with these guys. So these guys are your family, they're your brothers and, uh, Brandon, we're going to go there, but I want to ask you about, a, a specific fire in 2013, if you wouldn't mind. And you know where I'm going, bro. Could you uh, tell yeah. us the story? Yeah. June 30th, 2013 would be called to a wildfire in Yarnell, Arizona. Um, fire season already picked up. Uh, I just went through my structure one and two academy again, you know, was looking at the structure side. And, you know, this is probably our fourth, fifth fire that we had been on. And um, we get down there. It's about an hour, hour 15 away from Prescott. So it's a local fire. You know, we fight fire all over the state, all over the country. We, we go, when we beckon, we go. And um, we get called down there and we start getting a briefing on this fire. And it's kind of just been skunking around and, and not doing too much. And they've just been watching it. But it's, you know, got some potential to grow and, and get into some of the community and so we get called out to to put some line in and put some put some plans in place to where where that doesn't happen. And so we get hiking in, and I and I'm realizing it's pretty hot, you know, that day. And we're usually in hot weather, but just kind of one of those, you know, early season kind of hot days. It's starting to pick up, and you mm-hmm. know, we're feeling it. And so we get to the top, and by happen chance and by by training, I get chosen to be the lookout. And so I'm I'm dispatched down to be the lookout a little bit little bit away from the crew and so i just give them the give them the wave give them the nod and tell them i'll see him see him shortly mm-hmm. and uh the, the crew's working on this fire they're digging line and you know working with helicopters and just all the intricate details that go into it but as the day went on the fire behavior started to pick up more and more and um you know uh, late afternoon i hear this this weather update and the fire's pushing completely away from us mind mm-hmm. you and so it's you know completely headed north and we're on the south end and so we're in a we're in a good position in this but you're a, you're alone at this time right you're you're in a spot where you can oversee the fire give reports back to your crew on what's happening it's actually for people that don't understand the fire service it's it's a very dangerous position in itself because you're positioned away from the guys you're up front kind of seeing what's going on, but it's also a very trusted position because we need you to be the eyes while we're working. We need someone to keep an eye on the fire report back. Correct. And that's what you were doing at the time. Yeah, okay. Definitely. And gotcha. Gotcha. So I'm taking weather on the hour, listening to the radio, relaying back information. And we get this weather update that there's a, a storm cell coming in and in Arizona monsoon season, it could be heavy wet. It could be just lightning. It could be thunder. It could be super winds. It's kind of a gauntlet of the different different aspects that that storm cell can bring in. But it's supposed to turn this fire completely around and bring winds of up to fifty to sixty miles an hour. And so that's 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 intense winds on a, on a fire. And we've got a, a time frame that that's going to hit. And so we you know we start planning accordingly. But within Within the 10, 15 minutes, I can already see this thing starting to shift. And so I'm 
radioing back and, and let my soup and captain the crew know, hey, this is what I'm seeing down here because I'm at a lower ev- elevation and they're at a higher elevation. So mm-hmm. the winds are different, you know, and um, I start seeing this fire start coming back on itself and it's starting to turn. And it was like a, it was like a clock. It didn't do it immediately. It just started going, you know, north, northeast, east. And within that 15 to 20 minute window, my access to get out is starting to become cut off. And so I start heading out. My captain calls down. He says, Hey, donut, it's time for you to get out of there. You know, go ahead and grab the vehicles and get connected and, and get moving. And so earlier that day, we had met with the superintendent and so I'm, about ready to hit the dirt road to get out and he comes screaming down on a UTV and he's like, Hey man, get in. We got to go get your vehicles. We got to mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. And so we jump in, grab the vehicles, let, let my crew know what's going on. And there's still, there's still ways off from this fire and there's mm-hmm. still, you know, got some good distance between them. And so we get back into town and I'm with this other hotshot crew now. Right. And so we get plugged into the North end and they say, Hey, we need you guys to go cut line, put fire on the ground and try and cut this thing off. Cause it's starting to turn around. Mm-hmm. It's starting to come towards the community and not within five minutes of getting there. We're pulled out. This fire's turned around and we're getting embers dropping down. And so we pull out and this thing's moving full steam ahead. Right. And uh, that time frame window for that weather event was about an hour. And, you know, it had, it had done something even crazier that within within 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting there watching this fire and we're starting to lose homes now. So everyone's evacuated. We're starting to lose homes, getting a little chaotic. And the crew is is moving towards the town. Okay. They're, they're getting getting out of the way of the fire. They, you know, they'd been asked to, to get if they could make it back to town. Right. To, to re-engage from the city. Mm-hmm. And halfway through well, even more than halfway through, we get a call over the radio and it's my superintendent saying they're, they're getting ready to deploy their fire shelters. Oh, no. And I'm sitting there thinking, what, God, what's going on? Like, we had time. Like, this weather event wasn't supposed to hit for another half hour on the complete north end of town. And now it's completely coming through and it, it, it's ripping homes. It, it, the homes are going up. It's not just five, it's 10, and 15, in, 20. I, I want to just kind of also for the listeners, let them understand that when you're talking fire and you see it on TV and you see it in shows or maybe off from a distance, it, what you see and what you experience firsthand, the heat is so insane. The heat that comes off of it, it it's like a freight train hitting you and all you want to do is run and get away from it at times. And you can't because you cannot outrun a wind driven fire. There's just no possible way. And the, the heat that comes off those fires, you guys, I just can't even explain it unless you've been there. And every firefighter knows what it's like, because we always say after every fire, we go to our first fire. I didn't think it was going to be that hot. I didn't think it was be like that. So that's what Brendan is mentioning here. When it's coming out of the brush, burning homes, making runs, making pushes, it's basically like a tidal wave of pure flame that you cannot stop no matter what. I mean, is that a good assessment basically of what you guys were seeing? Wholeheartedly, you know, you can try and throw as much aircraft as you want at it Mm -hmm. and you might be able to, you know, slow it down, but Mm -hmm. to, to completely stop this thing when it's on a full run. Right. 
wholeheartedly on and so your your crews calling that they have to deploy their shelters that means that they're getting overran by the fire that they're not going to make it out correct yeah they're not going to make it to their safety zone and um they're gonna they're gonna jump in their fire shelters and so they're prepping for that so i can hear chainsaws you know they were calling in for airdrops but just due to the smoke lack of visibility couldn't find them and so now we're prepping for a burnover. Mm. So we've got the town evacuated. Um, all the other resources are off. And so now we're grabbing medical supplies. And now we're, you know, going through a roster. And I remember someone asking me, who's there? Mm-hmm. And I remember just telling them, like, everybody but me. And right. start naming dudes off, yeah. naming my brothers off, letting them know who's there. And I remember just seeing the shock on their face. And this is, you know, somebody that's been in the fire service for 20 plus years. Right. Um, and we're trying to get access to them. There's guys that are trying to get in there within their trucks, you know, trying Ooh. to get to them via roads. And it's just the fire's way too what, intense. Brendan, what, what were you feeling at the time when you knew they were deploying their shelters and they were trapped? And you know, you're in a very dangerous situation, but you know, they're in a hellish situation at that mm-hmm. time. W- what were you feeling, bro? Knowing that your brothers were experiencing this and you were not with them. Just that guilt, immediate guilt of, of not being there and, but trying to stay focused on the task at hand, mm-hmm. you know, cause they're getting burned over and there's people that have survived burnover. Something we're going to have to, you know, administer, here comes my EMT stuff, right? Mm-hmm. We got ambulances coming in. We got right. airlift coming in. We've got all these things that we're trying that the upper management of this fire is trying to call in mm-hmm. to be prepared for this. And so they finally, they got a, a DPS helicopter up and they're searching for them. And we, you know, I hear over the radio that they've got eyes on them. Mm-hmm. And um, so they land the helicopter and he's, he's a medic. And so he starts hiking down and I'm just, is just from what I understand that happened. Mm-hmm. And so he hikes down and he gets there and, you know, over the radio, he says, I've got 19 confirmed. Oh. And I remember instantly thinking, I told you there was 19. I told you what tools they had. You know, I told you as, as much information as I can, could. Right. And, it, and it hit me that he meant that they, they had passed. So that, uh, you were just notified when he said 19 confirmed that your brothers, your mentors, your family, all 19 were dead, correct? Yeah. Oh, gosh, and, brother. Wow. Yeah, just, it, wow. I'm sorry, go ahead. It was just, uh, it was just shock, you know, and um, my head began to play play games. You know, like maybe someone made it out, you know, maybe there's rumors or something or this or that. And, and, and it, it just wasn't true. And I wanted it to be true so bad. And um, I had never felt so alone in my life. Oh, man. So not worthy of being mm. there. I, I just wished I could just turn back time. Right. You know, and it could have just been me. If I'd have right. just been cut off on the road and had it deployed, they wouldn't have gone through that. Or if so-and-so could have made it or so-and-so could have made it just, just all those things running through my head. And, um, it, it was, it was torture. Oh man. I, I, yeah, I just, I, I couldn't imagine, man. I mean, just, you know, knowing the, the, the family that we have and, you know, I was sitting in an Oakland firehouse when we heard the story 
and my heart just literally dropped. And I, all I could think about honestly was the lone survivor because, you know, I, I knew where everyone else was, but that's the connection that I, I started to have when we reached out and you and I connected was, I was like, how is this guy feeling? Because I know of the past I had and the struggles of never feeling worthy and then carrying that over to being, I'm the only survivor, man. It, it, it just shook me to my core thinking about you, brother, you know, and, yeah. and I'm not taking anything away from your brothers and the, the families that had losses and the kids that don't have dads and the parents that don't have their sons anymore, you know, but obviously through my faith, I'm, I know where they are right now that I'm going to be able to hang out with them in heaven one day and stuff. Mm -hmm. But what crushed my soul was knowing that you were going to have to go through the struggles moving forward out of that. And you're going to have to, you know, figure a way to keep pushing forward, man. And the days, months, I mean, years, whatever you want after the fire, bro, what, what, what happened with you and how did you start, you know, coming to grips with this tragedy? I didn't come to grips with it for, for many years. Um, I turned to alcohol, mm -hmm. uh, PTSD just encroached my life and, and took over and, it was, it was living hell, whether I was awake or asleep, there was nowhere I could run. And the only place I felt like I could go to was the bottom, bottom of a bottle of whiskey or, or suicide. And I spent, you know, gosh, better part of three, four years struggling, trying to figure out and answer the questions that, you know, I had in my head and dealing with that survivor's guilt and dealing with that shame compounded by continuing to make poor decisions. So not only am I sitting there going like, why did I survive? But I'm also making poor decisions and, and drinking and just not living the life that, that I had lived previously being productive. But I, I did my best to keep it as internal within my own walls as possible because here's this hero status, right? Here's this notoriety, here's this fame. And it's like everywhere I go, there I am and interviews and fundraisers, mm -hmm. and books and movies. And it's like, I can't escape. Yeah. I can't escape it. You know, I stopped going out to eat, stopped, stopped doing grocery shopping, stopped, you know, many things just because I just didn't want to be seen because people would come up and out of respect and kindness, they would just, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss. And they'd get emotional and I'm right. getting triggered. And it's like, the fire season didn't stop that year either and neither has it since then, you know, mm -hmm. we've had tragedies since then. And it's like mm -hmm. every reminder, you know, just every, every corner was, was right. something, you know? Um, and that's why I can't, and for people looking from the outside into now the hearts and minds and souls of firefighters, this is one of the things that I've always tried to say, be careful with, because we're so quick to put our men and women in the fire service up as hero status, which is totally correct. I'm okay with it. Yeah. But when you're up there accepting the award, you're up there accepting all this, you don't feel like a hero. And now you feel like you have a, a status that's been put upon you. And meanwhile, like, you know, and didn't go through anything like you, but when they gave me an award for a certain fire I was on, as I was getting that award, 
what I wanted in return was someone to ask me if I was okay and provide me with the help that I needed for all the struggles I was going through for all the compounding PTSD of being a fireman for 22 years, you know? Yeah. To hear your story there, it reminds me of the way I try to explain it, and you can either say yay or nay on this, is it feels like you're in a fishbowl, even though you're in the world, and you can hear and see everything, but it just, it's, the feeling is just different. You know what I mean? Does that make sense that you're looking out through a fishbowl that is like blub, blub, blub is what you're hearing and feeling, but everyone else sees you as Brendan, the national hero, right? Yeah, and, it's like and it's a Charlie a Brown conversation of want, 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 You know, right. it's just the clarity isn't isn't there. And then, like you said, those expectations, right? So you start hearing people say, "Man, God's got a plan for you, something great, something special." I'm sitting there going, shaking my head. This isn't it. So mm-hmm. I want to blow my brains out. I hope I don't right. wake up the next right. morning like this. This isn't special to me. This isn't, you know, something that I enjoy going through this is not anything nobody wants to be famous for like that's not the race anybody wants to win is surviving and and losing you know loved ones like that and so it was just so much pressure to to perform almost Mm -hmm. to to try and be that hero and to try and do great things and it, it just buckled me it folded me completely in half and Many people close to me would tell me, Brendan, you're, you're, you know, you're just a shell of yourself, dude. Right. Like we don't, we don't know who you are today. And it wasn't being rude. It wasn't being hurtful. Right. It was, it was the, the flat out truth. Right. You know, and I, I couldn't see through it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see through it and I, and I didn't want to. And that's why as Christians, you know, looking back on things that we've all experienced and gone through, like when I was at my lowest, you know, I was you know, 10 seconds out from taking my own life when someone stepped in and helped me. But if that person would have stepped in and the only thing they left me with was, God has so much more for you. You know, I don't want to sound blasphemous, but that could be the lamest statement on the face of the earth if we don't back it up. And there's a time to say that. Like when you and I first met, I never approached you with, hey, Brendan, God has so much more for you, even though I know he does. But as yeah. a human being, we got to approach each other and go, how are you? How are mm-hmm. you? Oh, my gosh. And, and, and be open to listen and learn from the person, make connections, and then start explaining to them what it is that you think God wants for them. Because none of us are God. We shouldn't just go to Scripture and read what, what we, you know he wants for us. We can have the Holy Spirit guide us and stuff. But in these situations, like you're explaining, it can be detrimental to run up to a guy and say, Brendan, I'm so glad you're alive. God wants so much more for you because we're acting <laughs> like you're 10 years post-incident. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, No, you're just months post-incident and you're just trying to figure out how to, to tie your shoe again and walk out and go get a burger and eat again, you know? And, and mm-hmm. so I totally see that, man. So with that part of it, dude, thank you for sharing your heart with us, man. That's so huge. But what I want to kind of talk about from that now is obviously you've worked your way from that and mm-hmm. looking back on the situation and where you weren't going through the drugs and the alcohol and, and constantly falling back into the struggles, even after you got your dream job and yep. that helped you grow. But then that dream job was ripped away from you in a way that hardly any of us could ever imagine. And then you fall back down. 
What is it that you look back now from this point in your life that you can do to help others? What, what, how are you growing and moving forward? It wasn't until I surrendered to God that I found healing, you know, partnered with some counseling and it wasn't until I, I truly understood the words that people were saying and the meat behind the potatoes, right. Mm-hmm. Of like, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. Mm-hmm. But they forgot the second half of you got to turn to him. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until I turned to him and just surrendered that I found that new sense of purpose and started to find healing. Right. And, you know, after getting sober for about three, about six months, you know, I'm sober, movies coming out, and I'm like, God, what do you want me to do with this platform? Because it's pretty big. And I yeah. want to do something that's going to honor you honor my brothers. I want to do something that's going to give me a purpose-filled life that, that serves you. Cause I've always tried to serve myself and I know where that ends up with. Right. And so he, he, you know, in prayer, he's like, go open a Christian treatment center. And I'm like, what? I think you got the wrong dude. (laughs) Like the phone lines are disconnected to the wrong person. Right. So I met with my pastor that I've been meeting with for quite a while. I said, Hey man, God, God put this on my heart. I'm a knuckle dragon hotshot and I have no clue what to do. And I was hoping that he'd sit there and say, yeah, you're right, Brennan, man. I think that's too much to bite off and chew. But fortunately he goes, no, that's, that's, that's what I think you need to do. And I, wow. and I feel like this is where God's calling you. So I opened whole fast recovery, a Christian substance abuse and trauma treatment center over two and a half years ago. And today, as we sit in this interview, you know, I've got four years clean. Oh, and praise I've God, got, Amen, right? And I've yeah. got a journey of walking with Jesus that that's the proof in the pudding. Yes. You know, yeah. that relationship with him is what's gotten me here today. And that's what I'm here to share with others. And that's why, you know, I get to live out my dream and right. telling people, you don't have to walk down the path I walk down. Right. Um, you don't have to feel alone. You don't have to feel hopeless. You don't have to feel like God's left you in, in a ditch because it's far from true. Mm-hmm. And I kept turning away from that. And once I realized how dumb I was, right, mm-hmm. and how much pain and how much trauma is surrounding that, it allowed me to push forward and do what I believe to be true, that this is something great. Right. Not only do I get to walk with people through their addiction and trauma, but most importantly, I get to help them foster a relationship with Christ and just yeah. be a catalyst, just be a vessel. It's not me doing it. It's just me being a part of. Right. And that's 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 the dream, right? You're, As a you're Christian. Following, yeah, you're following Christ and he's leading you through this, you know, because what what is he? He, he didn't say, I'm going to make you fish. You're like, you know, I'm going to make you fish. And he said, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Obviously, you know, we're talking about leading people to the Lord, but there's so much more to that, that when we follow Christ, you know, he's going to lead us where he wants us to go. And Mm -hmm. one thing I want to throw out there with you is that's why I'm so into people telling their stories, because let's talk about it. If you and I were to run across a guy who went and got his master's degree and got his PhD, then went back and went to seminary and then became a pastor of a church and came from a childhood where, you know, his family grew up in the church and all that. I think that's an amazing thing. And Mm -hmm. that's the route he went. And that's the route that God put him on. It's so great. But his stories a lot of time aren't going to catch guys like you and I. 
because Mm -hmm. you and I have been, God put us on a different path. Like if I was to look at a pastor and say, hey, pastor, you need to spend 22 years on an Oakland fire engine or working, you know, at Cal Fire like I used to do. And and then you have to go to shootings and you have to go to fires and you almost have to lose your life to be a pastor. That would be the stupidest statement I could ever make. (laughs) If someone else comes in and says, you need to go through this, this, this and this and go to seminary and do all this before you can start helping people in a pastoral way. Well, I look at it in reverse. That's just as stupid because God Let's us all experience things. What you mm-hmm. experienced touches people. When you meet someone who is trapped in the bottom of that bottle or, or you know, taking the, the opiates and struggling, well, when you can use your story to point them to the help they need, because I'm a true believer, none of us can fix anyone, okay? We yeah. need to be able to reach out and decide it's the time. And time alone doesn't fix anything. Time with Jesus will fix all things. That's something I love to preach to people. But when you take your story such as yours of tragedy of, I mean, dude, we we could have 10 more shows just talking about, you know, um, you and your superintendent, you and your guys. And actually, you know, I, I know you protect their names and everything here, even though you can find them in the movie. And so we could talk about each one of those guys and draw even more stories out of it to bless people. But the beauty of this is you went through something that no one should have gone through. You had a childhood that no one should have had and look where you are. And for people listening, this is why I tell you, you know what? Keep pushing forward, but it's okay also to fall back in the arms of God and and rest in him and use his strength because we get worn out, bro. Right. We, we get Amen. so worn out, but the, Greatest thing about pushing forward is not only helping yourself, like you said, we always want to make sure we're trying to help ourselves and be where God wants to be, but being able to help others, dude. And that's what your story is doing, bro. And that's why I so appreciate you just as a friend, as, as a brother in Christ, you know, I know we both mentor each other on things and stuff. I just appreciate you on so many levels, dude. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. The feelings are mutual and it's just such a, it's an amazing impact to be able to share this, you know, and it, and it does my heart so well knowing that it, it, it makes a difference for somebody. And that's, that's what I want. I want, I want someone to know that, that there's people out that, that are out there that care, that, that love about them and want to walk through their struggles with them. And most importantly, Jesus wants to be there, right? you know, and embrace them. And like you said, fall back into them. There's a difference between failing and failure, right? right. Failing is getting back up. Mm-hmm. And getting brushed off and a lot of times that's been god picking me up going hey right. pat on the butt keep going kid right. you got this you know you're a child yeah. of god do not forget yeah and that that's the beauty of of what we get to do today is, yeah. is just sharing that message yeah it's it's so good man and so let's uh tell everyone again where your heart is right now because you mentioned a couple of times about your recovery center and what you're doing let's let's hit that buddy where is it what is it and what are you doing so hold fast recovery is located in prescott arizona we uh serve men that are suffering with addiction and trauma from all over the country we've got a 90-day program and a 45-day program as well. And we just work with, with men that are, that are struggling. And we partner counseling with Christian beliefs and building a relationship and a foundation upon the, the truths of what God has for us and helping them live the, 
the lives that he intends and just getting them back to being productive, healthy members of society and giving them tools to combat that addiction and combat that trauma. And it looks so different, right? In the world, we think of addiction as homelessness, but we get everybody, right? We, we serve first responders. We serve mm-hmm. high-end business people. We serve young gentlemen walking through life. We work with all different walks of life because addiction doesn't care. Sin doesn't care. It does not discriminate, right? right? It doesn't look at and say, oh, that person makes this amount of money. That doesn't matter, you know, or they've got a family or they go to church every Sunday or they got this. It, it, it does not discriminate. And so we want to not only bring awareness to that stigma, but also help people have that transformation that only Jesus can provide. That is so good, man. So if someone is listening right now and they wanted to get more information on your treatment center because maybe they're struggling or someone they know or a family member struggling, where could they get that? Is there a website? Yeah. The website is www.holdfastrecovery.com. You can call us at 1-800-351-6858. We're also on social media. I know a lot of people reach out to me personally as well, you know, but those are the best resources to get help. There's a lot of hotlines out there to, to, to gain services, you know, and so I just want to encourage people, if you're struggling, reach out, ask somebody and find that path to help because most importantly, you deserve it. Great. And then your, uh, your book's name? Uh, My Lost Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. My Lost Brothers. Such a good book, my friends. For those of you that want to learn more about Brendan, his backstory and everything that he went through, check out his book, My Lost Brothers. You can pick it up anywhere that books are sold. And then uh, there's also the uh, movie that they put out kind of depicting stuff that Brendan went through, which was such a good movie called Only the Brave. Another amazing uh, uh, movie to check out. But anyways, Brendan, dude, it was such a blessing to have you on today. And I know for a fact, we're going to be having some more conversations. No doubt. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you so much. All right, man. Love you, dude. Love you too. Thanks for listening to Jesus is All We Need. Tune in next week for another powerful story that will deeply inspire, challenge, and grow your faith. And for more transformational Christian podcasts, Be sure to download Edify in the Apple and Android app stores or by visiting edifi.app. Hey there, it's Nicole Yunus, host of the How to Study the Bible podcast, where every single week we join together to encounter God through His Word. You can subscribe at lifeaudio.com.